And welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, we look at election 2024. We're going to discuss the likelihood of Joe Biden running again, including potentially some Democrat competitors. And on the Republican side, we're going to look at those who've thrown their hat in the ring and who we can expect to announce their candidacy next. Finally, we're going to discuss the state of the Republican Party, how many factions there are and how they will shake out in the next couple of years. Do we really expect all to rally around the eventual Republican nominee? Well, we have a wonderful guest to break it all down. Josh Crossauer is the political correspondent at Axios and incoming editor-in-chief at Jewish Insider, where he will be debuting a 2024 political column, so pay attention to that. His political journalism has been a trusted source for the public for well over a decade, spanning four administrations and dozens of midterm elections. He is a Fox News contributor and has co-anchored Fox News Radio's election coverage since 2016. He is a friend and he, it's just great to have you on, Josh. You're one of my favorite people to listen to on election. So thank you for coming on She Thinks today. Well, it's a real pleasure to be on the show, Beverly. And some people probably find what you do in an interesting job because I think most people get tired of elections, even though we are talking about the election in 2024, people are just had the midterms. How is it that you got into this industry and do you ever get tired of covering elections? So the only job I've ever really had as a as a journalist is covering campaigns and, and elections. I started off at, at the Hotline at National Journal. I went to Politico where I covered uh, campaigns and elections, and ran the show at the Hotline after that. And now I'm over at Axios. But no, I mean I, you have to re- really enjoy to be in this line of work. And uh, look, I, I've always felt that. There is so much noise. There's so much spin. There's so much uh, bad information out there in the world of campaigns and politics. And, and we see this every day. Like my job is to connect the dots, to actually make it accessible, digestible, and understandable for a broad audience uh, so they can actually enjoy politics and not not feel frustrated and and, and help help illuminate like who, who's going to win, who's running a good campaign, whose messages are really resonating with uh, voters. So, you know, I've been doing that since, uh, boy, about 2004. The 2004 presidential campaign was my first uh, big election that I covered. And the the characters have changed. The the, the issues have changed a little bit since then. But um, politics has always been, you know, alive and well, and there's always been lots to cover. And social media has changed a lot since then. What has been Probably the the biggest takeaway, seeing how candidates and even elected officials use social media to their advantage. Yeah, I mean, one of the big differences from 2004 is that candidates go directly to the public with, with their messages in a way that was not always the case uh, 20 years ago. So, you know, it, it can be hard. At t- you have to really work at building relationships with, with campaigns, with candidates to get a sense of where they're, they're coming from, because increasingly... Uh, many, many candidates don't want to talk to the press or want to uh, avoid being challenged. And uh, look, I don't think I don't think that's I don't think it's good for the for, for the political world and the press to have such a hostile uh, relationship. I think that's increasingly the case on the Republican side these days. It's a reality that the media has lost a lot of trust as well um, in the pu- public's eye. And um, it, it's important to, to regain that trust to have a healthy democracy. But Look, I, I think that social media has played a big role in, in, in that, where if you can just go directly to your voters, if you can speak to the base, 
uh, if you don't need to talk to to the press, if you don't need to be challenged, uh, it makes it easier to kind of play to the extremes. It makes it easier to rally kind of the the hardcore supporters, but lose sight of the middle of the road voters that often make the difference in these important elections. So there's a social media offers so much uh, uh, to, to to you know improve both as a, as a consumer and as a practitioner, but it also has, I think, degenerated the political conversation quite a bit in the last couple of decades. And, and something that probably may, is a challenge for, for a lot of reporters, I'm curious how you navigate that, is when you are a straight reporter, you're not somebody who gives opinion. How hard is it to not let your own perspective, your own bias, just seep into the writing that you have? How do you keep yourself neutral? Well, look, I, I'm an analyst as well, and I'll you know, sometimes, sometimes it's challenging. You're trying to kind of suss through the spin and, and kind of give readers what's really go give them a sense of what's really happening in Washington. And look, I think the most important thing is to do a lot of reporting, talk to people in the know, uh, develop a deep roster of trusted sources. So you can always get a good sense of, of what's going on and really kind of reality check. Um, some angles that you may be pursuing or, or story ideas that that, that you're, you're putting together. Um, you know, it always helps to, you know, talk to as many people as possible, even if you don't necessarily, you know, uh, agree or you think that their spin is inaccurate or is, is off base. It's important to have a wide network of, of, of sources and, and to talk to a whole lot of people on the Republican side and the Democratic side and all, all the different uh, factions and interest groups in between. Well, let's jump into the Democrat side. The big story over there is President Joe Biden, whether or not he is going to run again. A lot of people thought he would have already said at this point in time, just for um, information's sake, Biden turned 80 in November. We actually share the same birthday. We both were born on November 20th. I, I am younger than Joe Biden, though. And by the time 2024 comes around, he'll be almost 82 Talk to me about Joe Biden and what you're hearing as far as whether or not he plans to throw his hat into the ring. So to your to your question, uh, all signs indicate that the president is planning uh, to run for re-election. He's already making moves on uh, immigration and crime. Uh, he's uh, not not vetoing this this Republican bill that would overturn the D.C. Uh, a very controversial D.C. crime law that would reduce penalties for for some major crimes. He's not, he's allowing that bill to get overturned. He's taken a more moderate approach in the last few weeks on immigration, uh, adopting elements of the Trump immigration plan, border security plan. Uh, so not only do I hear that he's planning to run for re-election, but his actions as a, as a candidate, as a future candidate are, are at, in, in sync with what you would expect for someone preparing for a 2024 campaign. Now, the big thing, Beverly, about the politics of 2024 is that Biden, as you note, is is 80 years old. He would be 86 years old at the end of a second term, much, much older than any any of our uh, past presidents. And when you look at the polls, every poll that's out there shows that Democrats don't want Biden to run for reelection in large part because of, of concerns about that age and stamina and related health uh, issues. So, I've never seen such a disconnect between where the voters are in your party, in a, in a certain party, in the Democratic Party, and where the leadership is. And everyone assumes, a lot of the punditry assumes that 
know, Biden is not, no one's running against him. He's going to have a clear, clear uh, path for renomination. Uh, but look, when you have that disconnect and voters are expressing different views than uh, the, the leadership, something usually does happen. There's usually a vacuum that ends up being filled. So, you know, I do expect Biden to be the Democratic nominee in 2024, but I also expect there's there, there to be some surprises uh, along the way uh, that someone may challenge Biden other than Marianne Williamson, who's uh, in the race on the Democratic side. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an enterprising outsider who uh, maybe wanted to camp out in New Hampshire where uh, Biden uh, not only did poorly in the 2020 race, but punished the state party as well. So there, there, there are some interesting opportunities if you're a, an entrepreneurial Democrat running to the left, perhaps, and looking to challenge Biden in a way where he hasn't faced much, much opposition at this point. So would you say that the established Democrats are going to stay out of this? I know we talked about Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, potentially. Of course, you might have a few senators, Democrat senators who might jump in the race. Are these just nixed by the Biden administration and those who are pushing him out there? Yeah, so I don't think if Biden gets a serious challenger, I don't think it's going to be from an elected official because they're, you know, they, they're not going to want to jeopardize their careers if, if they don't win. And that that would that's what would happen if, if, if Gavin Newsom or Pritzker or anyone challenged Biden um, and didn't win, it would be problematic for their political future. But there are a whole lot of outsiders, especially on the progressive side of the party. I mean, Stacey Abrams, what, what, what is Stacey Abrams doing after losing the the Georgia uh, governor's race. Like she has some time on her hands. Maybe she could camp out in New Hampshire and, and, and run to Biden's left and, and make, make some noise. Uh, I'm not saying she will, but that's the type of candidate, uh, someone who isn't in elective office on the left and, and may have some, you know, maybe may be able to excite the base if, if the situation presented itself. So when polling shows that Democrats don't want Joe Biden due to his age, why is he still the front runner? Why, why are Democrats putting their chips behind him when the public doesn't seem to want him? I think the best, there are a lot of reasons, but I think the most uh, evident one is that the known known of Biden's age, which is a vulnerability, is better than the known unknowns of what would happen if Biden stepped aside and you would either have Kamala Harris as, as, as the, the front runner or you would have a very, very messy, very ideological civil war within the party with with the progressives versus the moderates, with a bunch of people trying to take out the sitting vice president. Uh, That is a very, very problematic situation. So in a way, the Democrats have put themselves in a little bit of a bind that, you know, Harris's numbers are even worse than than Joe Biden's. Uh, She would be the, 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 the early front runner, though I think a lot of Democrats have questions about whether she would actually be able to run an effective campaign if that situation presented itself. So those, I think the Democrats feel like Biden's age, it's a problem, but if he's running against Trump, who's also old, and if you can kind of see the matchup as between, you know, Biden versus Trump or Biden, even DeSantis, you could kind of overcome that, that, that challenge. I think the the odds of a Harris or, or a, you know, a very progressive candidate emerging in an open field would, would actually probably uh, give Democrats a worse chance. Uh, that's 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 the, the the most promising Democratic prospects in the future are, are folks that might be ready for 2028, like, a you know, Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, or a Raphael Warnock, uh, who just got reelected in, in Georgia. But there's the list of candidates in 2024, if Biden stepped aside, would not be quite ready for uh, prime time. 
Something that I've wondered as we've seen this administration unfold and seen how Kamala Harris just really has struggled so much in her job. I've actually been surprised how poor she is at communicating. She's she's worse at it than I thought she was. And I've wondered if he had actually chosen, let's say, an A.B. Klobuchar, who also ran for the nomination, pick somebody who had is good on camera, speaks well, usually does a good job, fairly moderate as far as um, Democrats go. Do you think we'd be looking at a different story if he had a stronger vice president behind him and seen that person actually try to take the baton and run this time? That's hard to say, though, Beverly. I, I, there was a moment where Amy Klobuchar was the the front runner uh, to be Biden's running mate. And then what happened was, you know, the, the George Floyd killing happened in June of 2020. And there was a real push. Well, actually, Klobuchar had some issues on the left with with criminal justice reform. And uh, on the left, there was a real push for Biden to pick an African-American woman as his running mate. And Harris was sort of the the, the obvious choice on that front. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think Biden still would be committed to you, you always you never want to step aside voluntarily. So I'm, I don't know if even if he had a, a more politically savvy running mate, whether that would have changed his own thinking. But certainly there would be a more natural transition, a more natural uh, uh, sense of things if you had a Klobuchar or maybe a, you know, a more moderate a Democrat with a little more political uh, skill uh, in that running mate in that vice presidential position. Well, let's go ahead and move over to, over to the Republican side. We're going to wait for Trump till the end. So he, of course, has thrown his hat in the race, but we also have Nikki Haley. We have Vivek Ramaswamy, who have joined the race. I want to focus on Nikki Haley first. Now, she is someone who was the former governor of South Carolina. She's probably most well known for removing the Confederate flag from the grounds of the South Carolina Capitol. So she's notable for that. She also worked for the Trump administration as the U.S. ambassador to the UN. So she has the credentials. One of the things that I have found interesting about her announcement, though, was that she focused very much on being a woman and also on being of Indian descent, that her her parents are immigrants. And we even heard some of the, the language talking about what she can do in heels. And I will say just as a female, it rubbed me a little bit the wrong way because I would rather her just be there on her merits, which are enough. People can tell she's a woman. Uh, I think talking about her immigrant background is a good thing to discuss. But it did seem like she fit into this identity politics arena that most Republicans try to push against. So I was just curious of your take on her on her announcement. I do think the one thing that helped her was Don Lemon, who made a very uh, sexist comment towards her, and that that worked well for her in the end. She got a lot of PR off of that and a lot of play. But curious on what you think about her messaging. It's interesting because I heard some of what you, what you what you just said, that there were some conservatives who didn't like the fact that she leaned a little bit in, into her identity as, as the woman, the one woman running for, for president on the Republican side. On the other hand, you know, she's she kind of triangulated on that issue where she started out her campaign video kicking off the race, saying she was a brown girl in a black and white world, but did not let that define her. Um, so I think like her, her, her campaign's view, she was talking about her story, but also not leaning into the sense of victimization uh, that you often hear on, on, on in, in progressive circles. Like she, she I think if you asked uh, her campaign, they, they view it as sort of not lean, mentioning her, 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 who she is, but not leaning into the identitarian politics 
Uh, although I, you know, like a lot of other conservatives I talked to had the same reaction as you did. So it, it is sort of a Rorschach test, if you will, on how, how you view those, those issues. You know, I, I think the bigger, well, the bigger challenge for Haley is she's running as like GOP classic. She's running to be sort of a throwback to the Reagan Bush Republicanism of, of, of the past. I mean, she would never say that perhaps, but her, her issues and hawkish foreign policy, entitlement reforms, free trade, like this is the classic conservatism that was dominant for many, many years until Donald Trump won the Republican nomination. And her bet is, is that there's still a, a market for that within the Republican Party and that the, that the that Trump is fading and the MAGA movement is not a majority of the party. The bet made by certainly by Trump, but even Ron DeSantis, who's not yet in the race, but is starting to make make his presence felt. The bet they seem to be making is that the energy and the majority of the party is much more MAGA than the GOP classic. So, I mean, I think fundamentally, if Haley's going to have any success, it, it depends on Republicans wanting to uh, return to the more traditional uh, conservative movement, want to return to the era of, of winning elections uh, more often than not from the Reagan era to the Bush era. And uh, that, that this kind of sense of grievance politics that Trump has uh, really, really brought to the fore and sort of the, 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 the difference in, in, in policy views, whether it's uh, a more restrained foreign policy to, you know, protecting entitlements and, and not, not, not making reforms, not cutting spending. Uh, those are very democratic. Frankly, that if, if, if this was 2002 after 9-11, those would have been very Democratic Party positions. You would have thought, yeah. you know, Donald Trump and his movement were on the left wing of the Democratic Party on that front. But those are now we've seen a little bit of a realignment. And now those are issues that drive the uh, MAGA base of the Republican Party. And um, Haley is going to have a challenge overcoming those headwinds. Yeah, I think for me, the thing that just was the messaging that was the turning point for me was when she was talking about, and I can do it in my high heels. It was very girl boss. I'm like, you could talk about being a female and be the only female. It was just a little kitschy. I was like, you don't need that. That was just my own perspective on it. But I want to talk about something in comparison to her. So obviously, as we mentioned, she worked for the Trump administration. Two other people who are potentials of entering in this race that work for Trump as well. You have Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, and you also have Mike Pence, of course course, the former vice president. How do these individuals, Nikki Haley included, and we've already seen her, her efforts, how do they navigate this taking on Trump when they also worked for him? So Beverly, they, they haven't like that. And maybe Pence a little more than the others. But the reality is that Trump is the front runner right now in the polls and in, in, in the reality of the Republican Party. Uh, and, and none of the candidates running against him have challenged Donald Trump on, on policy, on issues, on substance. I'm getting a lot of 2016 deja vu where, you know, Republicans ended up attacking everyone else but Trump, and Trump was able to, to romp ahead by winning, what, 40% or so of the of the primary vote, not a majority, but he won the nomination because he was the guy that consolidated his base while everyone else was fighting for, for the scraps uh, that were still out there. And look, the, the, the nomination is going to run through Trump. And if whether it's DeSantis or Haley or Pompeo, anyone who, who served his administration, they're going to have to say why Trump shouldn't be renominated. If they don't make the case, 
Trump is going to win the nomination. Do you think do you think it's fair game to talk about his personality and his communication style? How how is that going to resonate with voters if they say, look, we agree on a lot of the same policies, but we need a, a better approach. We we need to disagree and agree or yeah, disagree in agreeable ways. Is that something that's going to resonate? So like the it's what's tough and why Republicans aren't uh, going after Trump is that you know, they don't want to be the one person to be attacked personally and, and get into like a, a cage match with with the former president because he fights back. Um, I, but, but at the same time, like <laughs> the, the, the if, if there's not your, 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 your question is, is a really, really important one, because um, if you're not making the case, if you're not drawing a, a, a contrast, uh, it's just it's just hard to see how. How, how you want if Trump is consolidating the 35 40 percent of the party that is in the MAGA world and everyone else is kind of in their own space and not directly challenging that and you have a lot more candidates right now in that more traditional side of the party um you know that is that is going to be a, just a basic math problem uh, a ba- basic math problem for any 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 Trump challenger and I think the most effective way and you see see this with Haley and this gets to your question uh, Beverly the most effective way is just raising questions over electability, maybe age. I mean, yeah. Haley did it in a very passive aggressive way that she wanted to implement a, a, a mental test for anyone over the age of 75. I don't know. She, she should just say Trump is too old, right? Or Biden, <laughs> you know, like that. There's a little passive aggressiveness there that yeah. I don't think is effective, right? I mean, just yeah. say you don't think Trump, uh, Trump. Or Trump we need a new generation of young new leaders. Generation. Trump, Trump did great, but we need a new generation of leadership. But she's, you know, she's afraid and a lot of other Republicans are afraid directly to make that case. The electability case and the age case, I think, are the biggest vulnerabilities in the Republican Party for for Donald Trump. And of course, people think the one most suited to take on Donald Trump is Ron DeSantis. We expect him to to announce his nomination. He has a book out currently. He's going on the book tour. So maybe it will happen after that. As far as taking on Trump, I think he he has, first of all, he never worked for him. So he has that. Uh, Trump has already bashed him, given him nicknames. So there's already that back and forth going on. And obviously what DeSantis can point to is what he did in his state during COVID and could make the argument that he handled it better than Trump handled the country. And so how formidable of opponent is DeSantis and what does this do to Republican voters? So I'll be honest with you, Josh. So I don't live in D.C. anymore. I live in red South Carolina. And I've been talking to some voters here who were Trump voters, and all of the ones I've talked to have said they would prefer DeSantis. They'll definitely vote for Trump if he's the nominee, but they're hoping he's not. Now, maybe that's just the people that I know have a certain perspective, um, but these are very red voters. We're very disappointed when Trump didn't win in this last election cycle, but that's what I've been hearing. Yeah, so DeSantis on paper is a very formidable candidate because, as you said, Beverly, He's achieved great successes in a one-time swing state uh, in terms of fighting fighting the wars and winning them, especially on the cultural side. Uh, and, and that is what's propelled him to the top of the national conversation. Now, I think there's some – he's not a candidate yet, um, and, and Trump has done this before twice, and DeSantis hasn't faced the national scrutiny that comes with a presidential campaign. And, and I think there are some justified worries that he may not have the uh, – you know, the charm or the, or the likability, as one Trump campaign official put it to me last week, you know, there, there's a likability question that is going to come up and DeSantis is going to have to prove he can connect 
at the town halls in New Hampshire, at the at the um, coffee shops in Iowa. Like he's going to have to show he, that he people want to have a beer with him. The, the, the beer test that tends to be a good predictor of who who people like as their presidential candidates. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a legitimate challenge. I also think that there's a you know for all the successes he's had in Florida, uh, he hasn't had to deal with uh, foreign policy, and he's been very you know very. Um, nervous or very, very shy about engaging on the, on those issues that are going to be issues that Trump is going to bring to the forefront. Trump is running as a, you know, an isolationist as a, as a pop, you know, one of, one of these types who, you know, he certainly wants to defund and uh, withdraw from, from uh, U.S. military support of Ukraine. Uh, That's a big issue. DeSantis traditionally in the, in the house has been a hawk on, on foreign policy. So he's been very reticent to engage in those substantive issues and he'll have to have a, a strong answer on where he stands. And it may, may involve alienating some of the, you know, the, the Republican Party on foreign policy is divided pretty evenly right now. So DeSantis is going to have to pick sides. And, you know, he risks undermining the principled, like, leader, conservative leader, if he kind of tries to have it both ways. And we've seen a little bit of that so far. So that, that's going to be something he'll have to deal with as well. Um, but look, in terms of fundraising, in terms of potential support, in terms of being able to straddle both the MAGA wing and the traditional conservative wing of the party, DeSantis looks really good on paper. But the question is, we've seen we've seen a lot of candidates that look good on paper, that can raise money, that look like they can appeal to different parts of the party. And then when they're actually dealing with the press or dealing with voters in these tough settings, it, it, it's a lot more difficult. And and I, I want to see DeSantis outside of Florida actually you know doing give and take with voters in, in those early states before kind of making any firm assessments on how how strong your campaign is going to run. You know, one of the things that has been discussed is how many Republicans are likely to to enter this race. The more that you have entered, the more likelihood is that Trump will be the winner. You've already had Ronna McDonald, the chair of the RNC, talk about maybe having a pledge where people on the stage in order to debate in the Republican debate have to promise to throw their support behind the eventual nominee. Trump did not agree to do that last time. Um, so he, he was the one who didn't raise his hand. So how does the Republican Party and the different factions, how does this play out? Where are conservatives? Where are Republicans? What if, For those who are saying we just want a Republican no matter what, what should they hope for as far as how many people enter the race? I know that's a ton of questions at once, well, but just two, your two, thoughts well, yeah, on it's that. Two, it's a two-part question. There's a really yeah. important, important questions. Um I think the first is that the difference between the Republican Party now and where it was, say, 10 years ago, it used to be that the Democratic Party was a bunch of different identity groups. And, co- you know, there they were groups that didn't really agree on everything, but they kind of awkwardly worked together for, for the same goal. And that the, De- and, the, and the Republican Party was just the conservative party. You know, it was easier. There were different em- points of emphasis for, for different Republicans, but it was a much more ideologically cohesive party for, for a long, long time. But that's not the case anymore. There's not a lot of issues, uh, frankly, that Republicans agree on, whether it's spending levels or entitlements or foreign policy or even the culture wars in some cases. Like, you know, a lot, most Republicans are pro-life, but where you draw the line is a really hot point of debate right now. So there's not many issues that Republicans agree on. And it's really about, like you said, kind of picking, putting together who can win over these different groups and, and building a majority coalition. Uh, and it's not easy because it's hard to bridge the MAGA folks with the Larry Hogan's of the world, uh, or even, you know, even, even the, like Glenn Youngkin's of the world, you know, the, there is a big gap between Glenn Youngkin's rhetoric and his governing strategy in Virginia and, and Donald Trump's. 
So that is going to be the Republican Party's uh, biggest challenge. Now, as far as the size of the field, you know, I think it's sort of a catch-22. It's a little bit of a of a fraught question, because if you think Ron DeSantis is the, the best candidate ever and he's going to be the guy that takes out Donald Trump and he, he's the guy to support, then, of course, you want a smaller field because you would want DeSantis to not lose any support maybe to his center and, and be able to consolidate that anti-Trump vote. But there are a lot of Republicans that are not convinced Ron DeSantis is going to be the, the greatest of candidates. And if you want to hedge your bets a little bit as a Republican donor or even a you know as a Republican strategist, you may want some more candidates that that speak to those same issues, but may have a, a stronger political skill set. Like Nikki Haley is someone. I think that's what what her message is. Uh, she she you know is not as hard edged uh, as Ron DeSantis, but she she has a more appealing message to the moderates and independents that make the difference in in, in, in elections. So like you know you don't want too many because that would split the you know then they're all going after each other and you'd have a repeat of. 2016, but you don't want, you know, unless you think Ron DeSantis is 100% guaranteed to be a very, very good candidate, you know, you probably want some some other folks in there to hedge, hedge the bets if you're not a if you're not a fan of Donald Trump. And when do we expect most people to announce their candidacy? How much longer? Yeah, you know, I expect in April, uh, May, and and DeSantis, and I think DeSantis is probably going to announce in June if he gets in. So uh, the second, the second, a lot of lot of candidates like to put up really big fundraising numbers, and and oftentimes they'll get in when that quarterly deadline begins at the beginning of April. So I expect April, you'll, you'll see another wave of candidates. I, I also think that a lot of, there's some folks on the sidelines that want to see how Trump and DeSantis interact with each other um, and want to see how good of a candidate, like they really want to see if DeSantis can handle the national attention effectively. And if they, if he doesn't, someone like a, you know, Glenn Youngkin or, or Mike Pence even might wait and take some extra time to see how that, matchup fairs before committing to a presidential campaign. And final question for you, Josh, I'm not sure if you're a betting man, but is your money on another Trump Biden election? Boy, uh, you're putting me on the spot there, oh, yeah. Beverly. It's okay. Uh, you can, you can not answer, but well, I'm no, curious I'll, I'll, your gut. <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest. A month ago, I thought if I had to put odds on the Republic, at least the Republican side, I would have said, I would have bet the field over Trump. I would have said, you know, Trump maybe has a, 35% chance of being the nominee again, but I would have, I would have bet everyone else if that was the bet. Um, it's pretty clear Trump has both gotten momentum in the last month and also Republicans don't have a strategy on how to deal with that. Um, so because of those two things, I would, I, I think Trump has at least a 50, 50 chance, if not even a little bit better at this moment. And that's not where I was, you know, a month or two ago. Um, as far as Biden, you know, Democrat, I, I think Biden is going to be the nominee. I have yeah. no doubt. The question is, is there a little bit of, bit of, bit of turbulence along the way or is it a smooth, smooth, smooth sailing for him? Well, we have a lot of time left before 2024, but yet things seem to go very quickly. We'll be here before we know it. So it's always good to chat with you and get the breakdown. Josh Crossauer, the political correspondent, senior political correspondent, Axios and incoming editor in chief at Jewish Insider. Check him out there. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Beverly.
And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help, and we love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at IWF, Thanks for watching.